0: Well, I invite you this morning to find your way to Luke chapter 18. We continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. Here in Luke 18, verse 18 is where we'll begin this morning. Uh, I trust a very familiar passage to uh, many of you. It's found in three uh, different Gospels. And yet, I, I hope and pray that God will give us new eyes to see it and that He by His grace and through His Spirit would draw us closer to Him through it. Luke 18 beginning in verse 18. You'll find that on page 877 if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible. Hear now the Word of God. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Our Father in Heaven, we're thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ as He works in this man's heart to to bring him to salvation. And I, I trust, or to offer him salvation, I trust that You would do likewise today, that You would work in our hearts to bring us into salvation Or at least to help us glory in what You have done in order to save us. So help us. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my uh, favorite books is uh, Alexander Dumas' The Count of Monte Cristo. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read it. It is rather large. I will tell you that beforehand. But it is an excellent book. Maybe you've seen one of the many movies based upon this book. It's about a man named Edmund Dantes who is imprisoned in the Chateau d'If because of the crimes he has done against the government. And there in the Chateau d'If, this dungeon, he meets this man named Abe Faria. And Abe Faria is an incredibly wise and brilliant man. And he goes on to teach Edmund everything he knows about logic and philosophy and chemistry and history, all the accumulated knowledge that Abbe Freya has has gained, he imparts to Edmund Dantes while they remain in prison there in the Chateau d'If. But there's one thing that he won't reveal to Edmund. In fact, Abbe Freya this whole time wears a wooden cross around his neck. And he said to Edmund, this cross contains a secret, but I will not reveal it to you. Until that is, Abbe Freya grows so old and frail, he realizes he will never escape this dungeon. And so one day, he takes the cross off his neck and he, he, he actually opens a secret compartment in the cross. And he takes out this very tiny treasure map. A treasure map to the island of Monte Cristo. And, and he says there's gold there and there are jewels there and there, there are diamonds there. More than you can imagine. He says to him... You are going to be a very wealthy man, Edmund Dantes. Right? It's the lure of treasure. Certainly you have imagined this and sometime in your life what it might what it might be perhaps to win the lottery, right? Or maybe if you're a little more holy, you, you might imagine what it'd be like if like a dead uncle died, right, and left you this inheritance, right? What what it would be like if you became very wealthy. Well, I want to consider uh, this morning a, a actual true story of a man who came upon a treasure or perhaps earned this treasure. A very wealthy man. And perhaps we might see that wealth is not all that we might imagine. I want to talk to you this morning about a rich young ruler as this story is often called. And you see him there in verse 18. A ruler came and asked him. We find out later that he is very wealthy. Matthew and Mark tell us that he is young. In fact, you can really think about his riches in three ways, I think. Uh, He is, uh, of course, has this influential uh, wealth. He's a ruler, right? Perhaps a magistrate, maybe a mayor of a city or something like that. He also has a moral wealth. He's very concerned with keeping God's commandments. As you note in verse 21, he says in reference to the commandments of God, all these I've kept from youth. Now, I would assume he's, he's telling the truth in his mind, at least, that, that he labors to keep God's commandments. I think this man is probably a very good man that we would, in some sense, say, or at least like a, a good citizen or a generous neighbor. He maintains sexual purity. He's a, no doubt, a honest and a man of integrity. He has, uh, moral wealth and influential wealth. He also has financial wealth. You see in verse 23, he's described as extremely rich. And a lot of times we think these things go together, right? If you're a good guy and you obey God's commands, and God's going to bless you, right? If, if you do good, you will do well, the saying goes. Or, or if you, you're not doing well, it's because you haven't been good. I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, the movie or the musical Sound of Music. Um, I, unfortunately, have seen it dozens of times. And... Uh, I've done everything I can to not memorize the songs, but unfortunately, they have found their way into my heart—and um, or at least in my mind. Certainly not my heart. But uh, there is a uh, a time in the in the musical. Remember when Maria is about to marry the captain, and it's all very romantic, and they're out there in the gazebo or whatever. And uh, and and so what do they do? Well, you know, they sing a song, of course, right? And uh, and and Maria sings. This always strikes me. Somewhere in my youth or childhood. I must have done something good. Right? That's that idea. In the past, I've done good. And therefore, I'm getting this good life now. That's what we think. Right? That if you obey God, then God will make life easy, give you a little money, maybe even make you extremely wealthy. And so here's this man. He's a moral man. He's a rich man. He's a powerful man. he's He's a young man. And I'll tell you, he's even religiously eager Unlike most of the rich and powerful people we find in the Bible, he's not annoying, right? He, he actually, according to Mark's gospel, runs up to Jesus. I mean, how many rich people you actually find running, right? They, they pay other people to run for them. And here this man comes and he runs to Jesus. Mark also tells us he falls on his knees before Jesus. He's humble and he asks there in verse 18 the most important question that anyone can ever ask. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He comes to Christ. He's not asking for a handout. He's not asking for a favor. He's not asking for, for Jesus to do something for him. All he wants is truth. This is not a test as it so often is when the Pharisees come and try to trap Jesus. Uh, This is a genuine request. He genuinely wants to know, and he's on his knees, how can I have eternal life? You know, some people ask questions not because they want an answer, but because they want to show you how much they know, right? That's not this guy. I mean, he he just wants, how do I get eternal life? I mean, has that ever happened to you? Someone just run up to you, fall on their knees and say, please tell me, how might I get eternal life? Could you imagine how, what an incredible opportunity that would be? And and in fact, this man even has the humility to admit that he lacks something, right? This guy is so together that he knows he's not all together. And so he comes to Jesus and says, I need some help. So you think about this, rich, powerful, moral, eager, humble young right the disciples must they must have seen this guy come to jesus and think okay we want this guy in our group right in fact if he probably came to church this morning we like, okay let's 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 make sure we're all friendly to that guy right right we want somebody like that in 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 our group this is the guy we're we're waiting for i i think maybe i'm i'm imagining too much but they're thinking please don't mess this one up jesus okay Of is this guy? We need this guy. And Jesus talks with him. And within just a handful of minutes, Jesus sends him packing. He walks away, the Bible tells us, very sad. And I I think this story is, um, if you you allow yourself to look at it with new, fresh eyes, you'll find it shocking. Um, It's shocking as he comes and asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As I as I wrestle with this passage, it was a difficult passage for me to write this sermon, to be honest. But I think this passage ultimately is is about salvation. How do I get eternal life? And Jesus in verse 24 and verse 25 will refer to the kingdom of God entering the kingdom of God. In verse 26, the um, the disciples will say, "Well, then, who can be saved?" So you think about kingdom of God and eternal life and saved. They're all going together again. Jesus in verse 30 which we'll consider God willing next week, brings up eternal life. This man wants to know how how can I live after death, right? Or he wants to be saved. He wants to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to the rich, powerful, moral, religious, humble, eager man, you are totally outside God's kingdom. You're not even close. And it's almost as if this man is, his whole life has been climbing a mountain and, and he, he's been laboring and working and doing the best he can. And he thinks, okay, I just, stu- I'm almost to the top and I just lack one thing. I, I, Jesus, what one thing must I do? He'll say in the other accounts, tell me the one more thing to, to get myself onto the top of this mountain. There's got to be just one more step. And Jesus says to him, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're on the wrong mountain. And you spent your whole life laboring to climb the wrong ladder you are far from eternal life and it's so astonishing that even the apostles say wait a second if he's out then who in the world is in and they go on and actually begin to doubt their own salvation we'll see this next week if this if a guy like this is not in the kingdom of god then are we even in the kingdom of god and so this is—it it is an astonishing passage, and I think it will be very helpful for us as we think about this rich young ruler, because I did some research, and it actually turns out he's from Loudoun County, okay? 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 you know, uh, It's just like you and I. I mean, he's, you're, you're doing pretty well, I must say, uh, especially if you live in this part of the country, even if you're American, even if you're not doing well for Loudoun County kind of status, you're still doing pretty well. And, um, and you're, you're probably moral. You're probably a good moral person. And you, you, know, you even, I mean, you're here at church today. You even admit, like, well, I have room to grow, right? You you've came here and said, okay, well, there, there's got to be something more for me. And so I think it's very pretty, pretty similar. And so the question then is, okay, if he's like us and he walks away sad, how, how can I make sure that when I encounter Jesus, I don't walk away sad, but I walk away happy? How, how, how can we make sure that when we, we don't leave... Rejected, but we leave accepted. As this man's story, I think, shows us the barriers to salvation. You know, I would identify four barriers to salvation. My first one that I see is pride. Standing between him and eternal life is the issue of pride. Perhaps you can already pick up on it and with the way he asks the question in verse 18 when he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This story in uh, all three of the gospel accounts that record it always follows immediately the story of Jesus with the little children. Remember that? We considered that a couple of weeks ago. And and Jesus says, you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must come into the kingdom of God like what? Right? A, a little child. Remember that? You, you have to come in like a little child. And, and immediately after he says that, here comes this, this rich man. And he says, what do I have to do? in order to get eternal life, right? In fact, it's very interesting because in the one story, you have uh, Jesus receiving those whom the disciples thought should be rejected. And the very next story, you have Jesus rejecting one who the disciples clearly thought should be accepted. And, and this man is off, even in his question, when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because if you look in the previous verse, verse 17, he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not... Remember the key word? Receive. The kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. Jesus didn't say do anything. It's not about doing. It's not about earning. It's about receiving. And this man comes thinking, okay, there's got got to be like one more thing I need to do to kind of just check that last box to get in. There's got to be like a maybe a pilgrimage I could take or a, a work I could do. Maybe I could write a check Right? Maybe someone needs some money out there and I I could give a donation. Tell me, Jesus, what can I do? And it's clear that he's off because look how Jesus responds to him very kind of confusingly, I think, in verse 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And I just think that's very strange, isn't it? It's like Jesus is picking up on this minor word in this man's sentence and focusing on it. The important thing is not that he called Jesus good teacher, at least in my mind. It's the fact that he's asking about eternal life. And so if someone comes and asks me about eternal life, I'm not going to correct what, what he calls me. Maybe he calls me something silly like reverent. What an awful name, uh, title that is, right? But I wouldn't say, well, why do you call me reverent? So I would say, okay, let's talk about eternal life. But this man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, that's interesting. Why do you think I'm good? Only God is good. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's helping this. He's 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 certainly correcting this man's theology. He wants him to understand who God is. I think in order so that he can understand who he is. He says only God is good. You need to realize that God is uniquely good. That 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 certainly you know we have goodness in us. There is no doubt. But God is unique and perfect in His goodness. And the Bible says over and over and celebrates God's goodness. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. He is, he is good, his love endures forever. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and on and on it goes. And if God alone is good, you know, what does that say about this man? What does it say about you? If God is good, then we alone, right? then we are not good. We're sinful. And it's clear to me that Jesus wants this man to think about himself, right? Um, now, listen, you may be good compared to me. But God is our standard of goodness. And therefore, none are good. And if God alone is good, then our quest for eternal life cannot be based upon what? Our goodness, right? It can't be based upon that. Which is precisely what this rich young ruler is going to claim in a moment. See, Jesus is not picking up an incidental word when He says, why do you call me good? He's trying to dig out this man's root of confidence. His goodness. He's trying to humble him After all, he said just what? Four verses earlier in verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Are you good? Maybe you come here today and you're you're not a follower of Christ. Would you describe yourself as good? I, I would challenge you if you would. I would say perhaps maybe you should look at your indifference to suffering around the world. A disregard to the creator's commands, maybe a lack of generosity, a failure to trust. For us Christians here, I think this is helpful, and it gives us uh, this man. Seeing what Jesus is doing with this man, I think helps us to see what we should do with other non-believers. That we should perhaps begin when we're praying for them, that that God would humble them, that God would convict them of their sin that they would recognize first they lack goodness. And that that understanding would be the beginning of their spiritual sight. Well, if God alone is good, then we cannot rely upon our own work. Our own morality. Which seems to be the second barrier this man introduces to salvation. Very similar to the first. His morality barrier number two. The conversation continues in verse 20. And Jesus says to him, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Once again, I find this shocking. I and mean, this man says, Okay, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, Okay, obey the Ten Commandments. Right? It's almost as if he's saying, If you obey God's commandments, you can be saved. Now, the reason this is sho- now, it should shock you, but in case it doesn't, let me explain why it sh- should be shocking. Jesus just four or five verses earlier told us a story of a, of a man who kept all God's commandments and a tax collector who kept none of them. And the tax collector beat his chest and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, the man who didn't keep any of God's commandments but called out for mercy, he got eternal life. And the man who kept all of God's commandments plus stuff that god didn't even command he doesn't get eternal life and so this man then four verses later comes to him says how can i have eternal life and i think okay i know what jesus is going to say he's going to say you want eternal life you need to ask for mercy just like the story i just told you of the tax collector and god will give you eternal life but jesus doesn't say to this man okay ask for mercy he doesn't say, beat your chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The question, I think, is why? If Jesus just told us that's how we're saved. Well, I, I think as we see this man's response, the idea of teaching him to ask for mercy as a sinner will make no sense to him. right? Because he doesn't think he has any sin. Look, look how he answers in verse 21. And he said, all these I have kept from you. Right? I, oh, yeah, the Ten Commandments? Right? Jesus does what? Number five, six, seven, eight, and nine there. The, what we might call the second table of God's law. He says, oh yeah, I've done those. I I can imagine saying, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but I certainly don't need mercy. You know, I live my life in, in obedience to God's commandments. And Jesus clearly doesn't agree with his assessment after all the whole conversation about you're not good. Only God alone is good, right? He just said that. And yet this man comes out and says, oh, I am good because I kept the commandments. Right, And I think Jesus is giving him the commandments in order to get him to reflect upon his own life. Look at your life through the law of God. He wants to help him see his sin. I think the goal that Jesus has in mind when He gives him the commandments is for this man to say, oh, I haven't done these. I need mercy. Right? Notice... Once again, my Christian brothers and sisters, and when you're reaching out to the lost, the role of the law in evangelism, it is good and wise as Jesus teaches us, to show, us pe- to show people their need for mercy before we tell them how they might receive mercy through Christ. And so what Jesus is clearly doing with this man, sadly, the man misses the whole point. He says, oh yeah, the Ten Commandments, no problem, what else do you got for me to do but the question is, well, why, why then is he even here, right? If he thinks he's keeping God's law, why is he even asking this question? And I, I think, I, I think behind this man's confidence, he knows something is wrong. I think there's still insecurity in his heart. In Matthew's account, he says, all these I have kept. What am I still lacking, right? He knows there's something missing, Right, he knows there, there's this insecurity. He, in somewhere in his heart, he knows his morality is not enough. And and if you think, by the way, you came here thinking I one day will be accepted by God because I live a good life and I'm a nice neighbor and I and I, I love my family and I pay my taxes and all the rest, I'm a good guy. I'll give you the shirt off my back, whatever. Uh, if you think that's how you're going to get into heaven, I tell you, you, whenever you pause, you will always be insecure in your heart because you'll never know, have I done enough? Have I done enough? That's how all the world's religions are based. You all have to work your way there, but then never the assurance, have you done enough? And Jesus sees this man's insecurity and He says, okay, Mr. I've done the Ten Commandments. There's one more thing I need you to do. And it's here that I think Jesus really gets to the heart of the matter. And He points to the third barrier to salvation. Clearly, this man's salvation. And it is the barrier of idolatry. Or the barrier of Idols. Jesus is going to tell him something after he has confessed. He keeps all the commandments. And he's going to tell him something very difficult to hear, but he's going to do it because he loves him. Again, Mark's account is fascinating because right after the man says, I've done all this, Mark tells us, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said. It's very similar to what you see in verse 24 of Luke, where Jesus looking at him with sadness. Right? He loves those who do not love him back. And that's the love of our God. This is the this is the Savior who wept over unrepentant Jerusalem in love. He he loves this man, and in love he seeks to perform this surgery upon this man's man's soul. He sees what's killing him, and he says, "Okay, if one more thing, if you want to come into the kingdom of God, you need to get rid of all your money." Verse twenty two. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, right? You'll have more than what you give up and come follow me. Okay. And again, I hope, I hope doing work in your heart as it did in mine. This is once again, shocking, right? Um, what? Okay. One more thing you want eternal life. One more thing. I mean, do you expect, I know you expect it because you heard the story a hundred times, but do you expect him to say, okay, one more thing you lack, sell your money, take a monastic vow of poverty, denounce private property, and then you'll have treasure in heaven and then you'll be saved. No, we don't expect that. And he's not teaching, by the way, in case you're wondering, salvation by monastic vow of poverty. Okay, he, he part of the shock is that he's never told anyone else this. He's constantly encountering people and he never tells anyone else to sell everything you have and then you'll have eternal life. In fact, uh, let me show you another rich man in Luke 19. Just turn over to Luke 19 for a second. Okay, this man, you know, this guy as well. His name is Zacchaeus. Very wealthy, just like the rich man in Luke 18. And Zacchaeus has an encounter with the Lord. And we see the result of that encounter in Luke 19, verse eight. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Okay? Zacchaeus gives away what? Half. Okay? He doesn't give away all. gives away half. And notice what Jesus says in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. He's saying Zacchaeus is saved. Right, so Zacchaeus didn't give away all. So it's clear that God's not calling everyone to give away all. And by the way, the fact that Zacchaeus is saved, as we'll see when we get there, is that he's not buying his way to the kingdom. He's just showing his life has been changed by his encounter with Christ. And yet to this man, he says, okay, you, Mr. Rich Young Ruler, you need to get rid of all of it. What's he doing? Well, Jesus constantly, I think, under, he understands our heart far better than we do. And and you know, there's a story that you know in, in John chapter four. Remember, Jesus having a conversation with a woman at a well, very similar to this conversation. And they're they're talking about uh, living water. He he goes to the well and and he says, "Will you draw me some water?" And she says, "Sure, I'll, I'll give you some water." And Jesus says, "I I actually have some water. I would give you. In fact, it's living water. And and if you would take this living water, you'll never thirst again. Right? And what does she say?" She says, sir, I would like to have some of that water, right? And you know what Jesus says to her when she says, okay, give me that water. He says, okay, go call your husband. Now, we, we, we haven't been talking about husbands at all in this conversation. He so says, go, go bring your husband. There's a problem. She says, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not married. And Jesus says, I know. But you have been married five times. And the man you're living with is not your husband. Right? Why, why does he go tell her? He says, okay, I want it. And why does, he, why does he bring up husbands? Well, because her relationships are for her. That's her living water. Right? That's, that's where she finds hope and security and meaning. That's her idol. Now this man, he doesn't say, okay, one more thing, go call your wife. right? Because relationships are not his problem. He says, okay, let's get rid of your money. Because that's his problem. Money is his identity. It's his God. Money has become his idol. He says, okay, I've obeyed the commandment, five, yeah, got that, six, seven, eight, nine, got them all. And Jesus, okay, well, you, you got the second table of the law. How about the first? How about the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus is clearly saying to him, I think money is your God. You go ahead and prove me wrong. You look to your money for identity and security and hope. You worship money. It's your idol. And Jesus says, I want to be your identity. I want to be your security. I want to be your hope. I want to be your God. You lack one thing. You lack me first in your life. Money is keeping you from me. If God comes first, Jesus says to him, then give away your money. I guarantee you two things. One, treasures in heaven. And to you come and live with me, and I will take care of all your needs. You see, Jesus is not trying to change this man's behavior. He's trying to change this man's God. And by the way, we are all, we all have, we all have a God. Everyone has a God. It's either a true God or it's an idol. It, it, everyone struggles with idolatry. It's often good things, by the way, our idols, possessions, family, education body image, right, accomplishments, GPA, whatever it is. And these things give us our identity and they give us our security and they give us our hope. And we, we live to kind of maintain them and, and we, we focus on them. And I, I need to grow in this area and I want to serve this and I want to protect this, right? And it's it's who we are. And if you take that thing away from us, we, do, we don't know who we are anymore. You take our family away or give us a, a, a failing grade. It's like, who am I in, right now? You take my money away. I uh, take my car away. And it's our identity and our hope and it's our security. We worship. Everyone worships. Something. Everyone sees, has an idol that that gives them their identity and hope and security, and they worship it by talking about it and dreaming about it and planning about it and telling other people about it and sacrificing other things for it. Uh, David Foster Wallace no, was not a Christian. was in fact uh, uh, against Christianity, if you will. He was in his 40s when in 2008 he killed himself Um, but david wallace um, knew something about his own heart and soul listen to what he says in the day-to-day trenches of life there is no such thing as atheism there is no such thing as not worshiping everybody worships the only choice we get is what to worship And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty. You will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. I think that is brilliant and spot on. We all worship something. And Jesus simply seeks to change what we worship to become the center of our life. He wants to be the center of this man's life. And I think this is important for us to understand because sometimes we have in our culture uh, this very kind of Christianized culture, if you will, of course becoming less so, but we think Christianity is something we add to our life. Kind of Christianity kind of rounds us out. i got my career. i got my family. i got my hobbies. i got Jesus over here. And that will just kind of make me a complete person. He's just another book we put on our shelf. And he comes to, this, he comes to Jesus and says, Okay, you know, I'm doing this. And I've I'm, I'm got the wealth covered. And everything's good. I've, I've risen up in ranks. I, I lack one more thing, Jesus. What, what one more thing should I do? And Jesus says, Listen, pal. You don't need one more step. None of us need one more step. I need to become everything to you. Everything needs to change. And I think so often we have this idea that we're gonna, you know, Jesus will come and enhance our life. Right? He'll make he'll, you know he'll make my marriage better or or help me in my finances. And and we it's almost like we're inviting Jesus over to our house. And I know I've used this metaphor before, but it's helpful that we invite Jesus over to the house and say, Okay, Jesus, I want you to brighten this room up a little bit. Can you, maybe, I don't know, get out the paintbrush or move the couches around or, or you know, kind of this room's kind of dab. Will you, will you take care of this area in my life? And Jesus says, no problem. But instead of getting out a paintbrush, he gets out a chainsaw. Right. And he starts cutting down your walls and you think, wait a second, that's not what I asked you to do. I'm just looking for a little paint. Right. I just I just want a, a little redecoration. And Jesus goes out and gets on a bulldozer and he begins to push down your house because he's not here to brighten up your life. He's here to take over your life. He's here to be your life. He he wants to change everything. Please understand that when I invite you to salvation or others to salvation every week, I am not inviting you to pray a simple prayer and then go on with your life. Salvation is a summons to let go of everything and surrender it all to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is here to take over. And this man comes to Jesus and says, okay, what can I do? What, what more thing do I need to do? And it's almost like he comes to Jesus with fists full of money. And Jesus says, okay, there's one more thing. I need you to grab my hands and let's go. And he looks at his money. And he looks at Jesus. And he makes a decision in verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. It's astonishing to me because this man just ran up to Jesus. Eager to gain the kingdom of God. Jesus says, okay, this is what it entails. And he walks away sad. Very sad. The word it might be better translated in despair or disoriented. In my mind, I see him walking away just kind of staggering. Not sure what has just happened. And I, to be honest, I feel for this guy. I mean, I, I hope one day we'll meet him in heaven. I hope one day he figured it out. Because this is not easy, right? Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't ask this of you? And by the way, if you're glad that Jesus doesn't ask it of you, you're probably the exact type of person that he would ask it of you. But this is hard, right? Have you ever been repelling? Um, you ever been repelling? Repelling is uh, an interesting experience because one moment you're you're on you're standing on the earth, and then the next moment you you need to lean lean back over a 200 foot chasm, right? And you hold onto a rope. Right? They they harness you up. They tell you how to hold the little rope, and you lean back. And I I know the earth. The earth and I are friends, and I've been I've known the earth my whole life. Very stable, right? Okay, but the rope, man, you've just met the rope. And uh, you're not quite sure about the rope. And what you have to do is you just have to, I mean, just let you put all your trust that this rope will hold. And I feel like that's what Jesus is asking. He just knows his money. He's had his money his whole life. He knows, money. he knows what it's like to live this life. And Jesus calls for him, you need to lean back now. And you need to trust Me. And He would not do it. He walks away very sad. What a what a powerful contrast between this man and the other rich man in Luke 19, Zacchaeus, who's just giving, just giving, who wants money, right? Zacchaeus is just like, okay, you want some money, here's some money, I got some money for you. It's just this is joyful generosity. Zacchaeus is totally changed. And I think these two guys really typify the, the common reactions to Jesus. When you come to Jesus, and if you come to Jesus, you understand that Jesus does two things. Jesus always demands more than you want to give him. And He always offers you more than you ever thought to ask. Right? And if you've been following Jesus, you've encountered that. That He will want more from you and He will give you more than you ever thought. And that people are coming to Jesus and there's really two reactions. People are either radically changed like Zacchaeus or they are radically disturbed or sad or angry like this man. It's always these two responses. It's always bowing in awe and love and reverence and joy. Or it is always offended or disturbed or angry. No one is ever indifferent with jesus right we've been in luke for a while now we haven't found anybody bored with jesus no one is yawning when jesus is around and if you find jesus like sweetly comforting and he would be good on a hallmark card that you would send out on mother's day or something like that you have not met the real jesus he always demands more and he always gives more and the key is that we need to see what we gain in christ And 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 gain from Christ, but gained through Christ and in Christ far exceeds them what he'll ever ask us to give up. He is the greater treasure. And so tell you, let me tell you, your wealth, your beauty, your education is nothing. It's nothing compared to knowing God and loving God and being loved by God and being adopted into God's family and accepted by God. Is is He your first love? Is he first in your life? And, and if you answer that question in your head, my second question is, how do you know? Because I'm afraid all of us are going to say, yes. But what? Are, what's the evidence? Well, that might be a great question to have over lunch. Grab, grab some friends. Go out to lunch today and say, okay, let me ask. Pastor asks this, is God first in your life, and how do you know? That's what he's asking from this man. And in, in the end, he says, no. Listen, I want God as long as He doesn't come between me and my idols. I wonder if there's anything you're unwilling to give up to follow Jesus. Is, is there something that if Jesus asks you to give up, you, you, you maybe something you fear that Jesus might ask you to surrender? Well, that might be helpful for you to think about and pray through. I want you to understand He's worth everything. He is a treasure beyond compare both now and forever. And more than that, not only is He a treasure; He treasures you. He delights in you. You can take your identity not from your bank account or your GPA or your dress size or whatever it might be. You could take your, your, your identity from Jesus. I love how John Newton put it. He said, Since I have known the Savior's name and what for me He bore, no more I toil for empty fame. I thirst for gold no more. Placed by his hands in this retreat, I make his love my theme, and see that all the world calls great is but a waking dream. And Jesus moves on to a fourth idol, or fourth, uh, excuse me, fourth barrier to salvation. And it's clear, isn't it? It's that of money. Jesus understands this is getting away. You notice he walks away sad in verse 23, because why? He was extremely rich. And as I mentioned, just like you 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 i want you to understand today you're extremely rich now the problem with with talking about rich people in the bible is everyone thinks okay i know rich people they're the people richer than me right they're always richer than you but let, let me just ask you today very simple question do you have a toilet in your house right and then you you pull the lever and then it takes things away right you have one of those if you have one of those you are rich Fifty-three percent of the world's population lives on less than ten dollars a day. Fifty-three percent of the world's population—that's two thousand five hundred dollars a year. You make more than that, probably. You make ten times that. You are—if you you make twenty-five thousand a year—you are ten times richer than the average person in this world. Chances are you probably make far more than that. You're rich. He's rich, and he walked away sad because he's rich. I think that, by the way, that would be a good slogan for the lottery. Don't you think? Um, win the lottery and walk away sad. Right? Is that's clearly what? See, money. Listen, money does not promise. Money promises happiness, but it doesn't always come through. Now, now, listen. It, money's a blessing, right? And praise God for generous people who 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 use their money. Not don't worship their money, but use it. I mean, you know who? Why Luke has the 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 freedom to write this book because a rich man named theophilus said here's some money go write a gospel that's why we get the gospel of luke is why we get the book of acts some rich man commissioned luke to to write this right so we praise the lord but it's a temptation money's like fire it could be very good and very dangerous and you know the dangers of money don't you money can make you dishonest can't it right you fudge your taxes why you're going to be just easy with the truth because you want a little bit more money in just a little while in fact just a couple pages uh, uh, one of his own disciples is going to make the suicidal deal to betray him for a pocket full of coins right M- money money can make you hard right i mean remember luke 16 another rich man right remember the rich man and the beggar lazarus Just walking over this man. Not helping him. Money leaves you wanting. You never will satisfy. You're always going to want more. Um, One Christian author said, acquiring things is a slippery slope. The more you get, the more you want. The more you want, the more dissatisfied you feel with what you can't get. Money and work expose the depths of our depravity. Work and money satisfy us initially, but then leave us disillusioned, hungry for what no person or object can give us. Money... Not only um, leaves you wanting more; it, it distracts you from what's really important. Proverbs eleven verse four says, "Riches do not profit in the day of wrath." Right? You, you, when trouble comes upon you, when when death comes upon you, when difficulty comes upon you, your money is not going to help you. And yet we spend all our time accumulating it and not working on the relationships that we need and the character we need. Right? Listen, no one, no one. I don't know how many people have died in this world, but there's a lot. Right? No one has ever said on their deathbed, no one, of all the people who have died, no one's ever said, man, I wish I spent more time in the office. Right? It, it's never happened. Because death brings this clarity that money sometimes clouds. Right? It will distract you from what's really important. Money will master you. Luke 16, Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You either hate the one, love the other, you cannot serve God and money. Right? You can't. Money wants you to trust it. Money promises what it will do for you if you have more of it. And you dream about what you can do. Money money hates to be given away. Money takes hold of us. Beware of the money you have. It can be very dangerous and very deceptive. It has this gravitational pull upon our heart. Um, and it, it exercises. It can be a barrier between you and God. There is no doubt. This man is clearly an example. This week I, I read a, um, uh, Leo Tolstoy's uh, story how much... Land does a man need? Um, There's a story of this man named Pahom, and he's tempted by the devil into discontent. And uh, he thinks, I just need more land. And the, the devil promises, listen, I will give you land enough. Right? That's the key word, enough. And he toils hard, and he finally gets some land, and he becomes this landowner, and Tolstoy writes, plowing and sowing his own land, making his hay on his own land, cutting his own trees, and seeing cattle on his own pasture. When he went out to plow the fields, or to to look at his growing corn, or to his grass meadows, his heart would fill with joy, right? But then soon he grew discontent, right? It just wasn't quite enough, right? He doesn't conclude land's not the answer. He just concludes, I just need a little bit more land. Tolstoy explains, if I could make my estate a bit bigger, then I could live at more ease. As it is, I'm too cramped to be comfortable. And so he struggles again and, and he buys some more land and he's happy with the land and then he grows content and the cycle, discontent and the cycle goes over and over and over until he hears of a tribe that is selling land for a thousand rubles a day right he says what do you mean you're selling land for a thousand rubles a day so you could we will give you as much land as you can get in one day for a thousand rubles and and the idea is they say well you, listen you start at sunrise at one spot and you go out as far as you want and you dig a little hole to mark your spots every once in a while and then, and then as much land as a boundary you can draw, everything within that boundary you get, the only thing is you have to get back to the starting point before the sun sets. And so this, I mean, he's just, payhom is just thrilled with this. He can't sleep at night. He's all excited. And he, as soon as he sees the sun over the horizon, he starts off with all the tribes surrounding. Him and he goes and goes and goes, right? And uh, he's digging and going. And, and he realizes, well, it's very hot and the sun is getting farther in the west. And he turns and looks and he thinks, oh, I'm too far away. And, and he, he does everything he can to get back to the starting point And he runs and races and he's throwing off his 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 garments just to get back and the sun's going down and he's running and the whole tribe is, is cheering and, and just when the when the sun goes below the horizon payom thrusts himself and he and he makes the the finish line and all the tribe just celebrates and the and the, the chief is just laughing thinking I've never seen anybody get so much land in a day and his servant rushes to him to pick him up to celebrate and Pahom is dead from exhaustion. And the servant picks up the shovel lying by his body, and he digs a grave. And Tolstoy, who entitled the book How Much Land Does a Man Need? concludes it writing, six feet from head to heels is all the land he needed. Are, are you living a life of honor to God, of meaningful sacrifice and love, or is life just this mad rush to get as much as you can? Are you going to part with it one day? Are you going to leave it all behind? All you need is six feet in the ground. Do you live for things? What were the five largest expenses you had last month? Where's your money going? Look at your credit card statement or your check ledger and take inventory on your heart. This, Listen, this man gets so close to Jesus and, and money starts jerking his chain. Let's get out of here. And it's sad. And he's sad. And even Jesus is sad. As you see in verse 24, Jesus looking at him with sadness said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of god jesus clearly is painting a picture of the an impossibility he picks the largest animal they knew that would be a camel and he picks the smallest opening that they had the eye of a needle and his point is as hard as it is to get a camel through the eye of a needle it is harder to get a rich person into heaven right now listen it's by the way it's impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle you do understand that right and therefore what Jesus is saying before a rich men enter into heaven is what? It's impossible, at least humanly so. Now, many, I don't know if you've heard that, that some pastors have come, well, there's a tiny gate. Have you heard this? There's a tiny gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, and a camel could get through there, but you've got to unload the bags and squeeze it through. The only problem with that is it's not true. There is no such gate. Um, in fact, the gate was, was built in, in the 10th century after this story, about 1,000 years after Jesus told it. So just dismiss this. It's missing the whole point of the passage. The point of the passage is not hard for him to be saved, it is impossible. And Which is why the apostles or the followers of Jesus say in verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Mark tells us they were amazed at these words. And the idea is if a rich person who has his God is clearly blessing and God is pleased with them, if anyone can make it into the kingdom of God, it must be the rich. God clearly loves them. And Jesus says, no, 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 listen. It's impossible. And they say, well, if the rich can't be saved, then... And how can anyone be saved? And Jesus responds, oh, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just not impossible for the rich. It's impossible for anyone to be saved. In verse 27. He says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Amen indeed. Consider quickly and lastly that God overcomes all barriers. If we have barriers to salvation... Please don't know that God can overcome them. So I want to be clear, verse 27, what does he mean with the word impossible? What is impossible? So the, they, he says it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. The disciples then respond and they don't say, okay, how then can a rich person be saved? They don't, that's not their question. They broaden it to everyone. They say, then how can anyone be saved? And then what Jesus says in verse 27 is what I'm telling you about the rich is true for everyone. That salvation is humanly impossible whether you're rich or poor. Now here's the good news is that verse 27 does not end that it's impossible with men. But it concludes, you've got to read on and rejoice, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Right? Right? And see, in other words, God can overcome those barriers. God does what is impossible. Now, you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, need to understand today that your salvation is an impossibility in your own effort, and therefore you are saved simply because God has done a miraculous work for you. Your salvation is a miracle of God. Therefore, it's just not listen, it's just not surprising when the rich are saved. It's surprising when anyone is saved. Right? We should be in awe whenever it happens. In fact, I, I think you want a passage to memorize this week and delight in and think about. Memorize verse 27. What is impossible with man, referring to salvation is possible with God. God has done the impossible in your life to save you. Be in awe. And I would think, the, listen, the more in awe you are of your salvation, the easier it will be to pray for those who are not saved. The more in awe you are of your salvation, the more bold you will be in your witness to the lost. Because if you think, okay, well, it makes sense that I'm saved, clearly. Right? But this guy over here, man, he is way too far from God. I mean, that, that would be a miracle, right? No, no, no. You're a miracle. The fact that you're saved is the miraculous, stunning, omnipotent, loving work of God. How stunning it is that, that, that you have come into God's kingdom. Understand that, and then your fervency to, in evangelistic prayer, your boldness in witnessing will grow. Right? I don't care how far your wayward son has gone or how firm your dad is in his unbelief or your Muslim neighbor or your, your agnostic coworker, or your rich boss. Nobody is too hard for God to save. He, after all, He saved you. He overcame the impossibility. He can save all because God overcomes all barriers. And He does it through the rich young ruler. Not the one who walked away, of course. Right? There's two in this story. right? Can't you see the other? Jesus, young man in his 30s, far richer than this man or you or anyone that we can imagine, had all, the, had all wealth. And, and He ruled. Not, not a little village. He sat on a throne in heaven and ruled the cosmos. And by the way, uh, Jesus kept all the commandments even from youth. Especially the first one. And what did He do? He gave it all up. For whom? The poor. He gave it all up for the needy. He gave it all up for those who begged for mercy. He gave up His wealth. He gave up His clothes. He gave up His friends. He gave up his his health, he gave up his dignity, he gave up his glory, he gave up his life, he gave up everything for the poor, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake became poor, so that through his riches through his poverty you might become rich. He surrendered everything. So that you and I can have eternal wealth. So that we can be pardoned and accepted and adopted and inherit all that God owns forever and ever and ever. You are wealthy even beyond your bank account, Christian, for you have received the wealth of God through the poverty of Jesus Christ. And won't you, my friend here who is... Perhaps thinking you can be saved on your own goodness. Will you not see, by God's grace, that the barriers between you and God are insurmountable? You need a Savior. And Jesus offers to be it. I can think of no better day than today than to be saved. Lay down your idols. And lay hold of Christ. Come to Him as you place your faith And a Lord who died for your sin and rose from the grave. Father, we thank You for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You gave up everything for us that we might follow Him and have treasure in heaven. Father, I trust there are things in our life that want to nudge You out. Idols that are competing for our heart's affection, will You help us to identify them and repent, surrender, do what we need to do. Help us especially beware the idol of money. Father, please help us to know that You alone are our hope and security and identity and love. We pray for our friend here who does not know You. We pray for the one or two or ten here that are worshiping something other than the true God, will You help them to see that though You demand much from them in their surrender to You, You offer them more than they can ever imagine and dream. Help them to see the treasure that is Christ. That they may place their faith in Him and receive eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.